0: should be unmuted. All right. Father in heaven, as we go to your word today, we just ask you to speak. Feel energized and excited about what you're going to do, and at the same time, you want to feel like a little bit like I've been through the ring. Thank you for the faithfulness of your body. And I ask you now, Lord, to grow us as you see it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to know that um, it was hard for the Jewish people to wait for Jesus. They sat a plate at dinner. The devout Jews sat a plate at dinner every night so that the Messiah would have a place to come and sit them. Every man would pray that his son would be the Messiah. Every woman would pray that her son would be the Messiah. In fact, that a woman should give birth to the Messiah would be the greatest honor of all, of course. And probably the only way she was going to really get much honor in her lifetime. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the anointed one of God. They were waiting for who we now know would be God's son. And they had some inclination that that would be true, that he would be God in the flesh. They certainly saw him as holy. The prophet Isaiah, throughout the book of Isaiah, writes time and time again scriptures that, we, that talk about the, way, the person that they were waiting for are trying to understand. And they were living in dangerous times. They dealt with disease. They dealt with drought. They dealt with foreign armies in and amongst their lands, they lost 70 to 80% of the children that would be born during that day would die before they were age two. We don't understand the suffering and difficulties that were going on all the time. And they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. So today then, well, we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. And we're struggling through things like A pandemic, a violence in the world, political struggles, family strife, uh, financial difficulties. It's literally all over the place. And as we start to feel somewhat oppressed by what's going on around us, and we feel like we want to pull up and get strong and do what we need to do, but at the same time, we feel like we just might kind of fade away. I want you to understand that they had very similar, even worse circumstances than we do, and they were waiting for Jesus. And as we begin to approach the Christmas, the Christmas season, we should be thinking about how the world was waiting for Jesus. We're going to look at a short text today as we talk about what waiting for Jesus should look like. Right. Okay? So grab your Bibles if you brought one. That's great. If you did, it's okay. I'm going to read the text to you. If you're online, I would encourage you. To grab your Bible out. If you're an electronic-only person online and you're using your phone, oh, you may have to search your house for a Bible and actually whip the pages open and read real print today because uh, it's hard maybe to be on Zoom and actually look at the text as well, okay? And so the text today, maybe give me a hoot-holler, amen. Text today comes from Isaiah chapter nine. Ooh. This is God's word, not my word. We're not about to read what God wanted us to hear from Isaiah chapter nine, okay? So here we go. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. Isaiah chapter 9, begin reading in verse 2. Verse 2 says this. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So these two verses talk about an event that's going to happen. They're looking forward to an event that's going to happen, and without any promise of what the event will actually be yet, in these verses anyway, they know that the event is the Messiah, the Anointed One coming. They know that this is a Messiah text, okay? But in these verses, without any promise of what the event will be, we see that. The condition of the people when the event happens. First of all, the condition of people that live in a dark land. It's a dark place. It's a difficult time. their struggles, etc. And a light will shine on them. God will multiply the nation. He will grow and you can even say break down the boundaries of who will be included in the nation. And then increase their gladness. They will be glad in God's presence. Which is an interesting subtle way because I think, well, if the Messiah comes and then when he's with us, we're in God's presence. You can say that it's symbolic or you can say that they're recognizing that the Messiah will essentially be God. That he will be God's presence. he will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So we have kind of two types of people. We have farmer worker types, if you will whenever you see harvest kind of symbolically and props, realize this is anybody who works for a living. You know, uh, don't call me sir, I work for a living. have probably heard that before. Those people who work for a living experience gladness at the harvest. When the benefits that they will reap because of their labor start coming true, they start to go, like, yeah, I work. I, You know, for example, I, I saved up, I managed my finances, now I'm finally able to get a house or get a car or, or whatever. Or I worked all week and now I get a paycheck. You know, things like that. When the harvest comes in, there is a gladness, a realization. And it, it can be pride, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a good feeling of having accomplished something. You worked the land, you did what you had to do, and now you have a good feeling of having accomplished something. Soldiers, similar. Soldiers, it says, rejoice when they divide the spoil. So after the battle, those who survive, they've really been through the ringer. They've lost friends. They've lost brothers. Except they've been through the ringer. Now they've survived. And after the battle, they divide the spoil. And that is their harvest, in a sense. They're not farmers, at least not that day. They're dividing the spoil and benefit. Now, now um, survivor's guilt is a very real thing. And soldiers sometimes struggle with being benefited because they survived when their friends did not. Okay? But there is a gladness, nonetheless, in dividing the spoil and realizing that now you get to eat, maybe drink. Maybe be married, Maybe take care of your family. You're going to be able to do what you need to do. And he says, this event that we're looking forward to in the next few verses, this event sets up people to be glad in God's presence, like people are glad when the harvest comes in, like people are glad when the spoils come in. Then verse 4. 4, and that 4 is a because. So When you see 4 in the Bible, a lot of times, especially in prophecy, it's a because. So This is why thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. So, a couple things here. First of all, and I'll dwell only on the first one, I'll mention them both. But I'll go on the first one to so break the yoke and the staff of the oppressor. We have enemies. We talked about this a little bit last week, and when I was preaching on Zoom, a little weird, but it got done. Um, The enemies are already defeated. The yoke is already taken care of. The oppressor is already pushed back. Right? It's already done. And then it says, as at the Battle of Midian. Now, if you don't know the Battle of Midian, you might know it this way. The Battle of Midian is also the Battle of Gideon. Remember Gideon, the judge, who had 300 men? He had a lot more men than that. But God weaned it down to 300 men, and a great battle took place where he basically decimated the enemy. That's the Battle of Midian. But guess what? That's actually only the Battle of Midian in part. That's the part that we remember we know. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you might remember that it goes on from there. We'll come back and talk about that in the points in a little bit. Okay? All right. The rod of the oppressor as at the Battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning comma, fuel for the fire. <clears throat> so he's saying every boot of the booted warrior, every cloak that they wore, and the picture here is that as they lay down and slept, that blood had soaked into their cloak because of all the Villainy, all the victory over God's people that they had had. But here it says, every boot of the Buddha the warrior and every cloak of golden blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. So God's enemies, in all their evil actions, all that they have done now will be fuel for the fire. And that's very important. Verse six, because you may recognize this. A child will be born to us. Now, notice I mean, don't miss the math of it. There's always math in these prophecies, okay? So God breaks the rod of the oppressor. God breaks the yoke and the burden, right? Because every boot of the booted warrior, the cloak rolled with blood, those will be burning for burning in the fire, right? Because this is why those things will be for burning in the fire. Because a child will be born to us, a son. Will be given to us. And then he's going to go on to describe this son. But this son is the reason for everything. That we were just talking about. Why the nation will be multiplied. Why people will increase their gladness. Why the yoke will be broken. Why the oppressor. Will be destroyed. Cast off. Why the boots will be for burning. That were soaked in blood. Why the. Cloaks will be for burning because this one who will be born to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. That's actually kind of poignant for today, isn't it? Nobody knows for sure politically upon whose shoulders the government will rest starting on January 20th, right? Wrong. The government will rest on the shoulders of Jesus. Not on the shoulders of a president or a general, or a body of delegates, the government will rest on the shoulders of Jesus. It says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. That's the first of a few names here that he's about to list. You know what a counselor is? A counselor is a person who guides and directs and wisdom. There's never been a great president, that didn't have great advisors. There's never been a great man that didn't have great advisors. In fact, many counselors provide safety. You need advisors. But chiefly and ultimately and most importantly, you need one counselor, and that is Jesus. Jesus would be the wonderful counselor. It would also be called Mighty God. I like this here because while it, it's translated Mighty God... What it actually says is strong, strong one. The word that we learned last week, or one of the words that we learned last week for God is Elohim. It's a kind of a generic term for God, right? (coughs) And the word here for God is El. It is the shortened version of that. And it basically means the strong one It is the mighty God. But then the word strong is put before it here. So it's like if you say the mighty might or the strongest strong. And the translation in English then says mighty God. Notice that this is not God the father. This is the one that they were expecting. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, the counselor. And he would be called mighty God. And then also called Eternal Father, and so the God the Son is also God the Father, and he would be called Prince of Peace a Prince, a Lord, if you will, to bring about peace. And we know it's peace between men who have the same Savior, and peace between men and God. It all got screwed up at the fall. There was a break between man and God, and a break between man and man, and a break between man and creation. And Jesus would be the Prince of Peace, to bring peace between man and God, to bring peace between man and man, and to bring peace between man and creation. Verse 7, it says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end. Eternity is what's at stake. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And so he's drawing from the prophecies and the promises to David and the prophecies about David's offspring being this eternal king. Jesus would be a descendant of David as far as the flesh was concerned. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore. And the last phrase in verse seven says, and this is what we stop in the text of the day. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, we know the reason already, right? The reason is the character of the one who would come. That's what all of this says. Every boot and every cloak burn because of the character, because of the nature of the person who will come. A child who would be born to us, whose government government rests on his shoulders, his name called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. No end to the increase of his government on the throne of David over his kingdom. All of this would be because of the character of Jesus. But it says that it will be accomplished this way. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of God will accomplish this. Zeal is a, not a very good word for what we're really talking about here. We don't really even kind of know the definition of the word zeal anymore. We think of zeal meaning passion or energy, Right? But the word here in the original language is basically jealousy. It is jealousy. It is God's jealousy. So it's a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. Not like God is a bad guy, you know, but a jealousy of God. And we'll come back to that in the points as well. All right, here we go. Number one, I want you to realize as we read this text, they were waiting for the coming Messiah. But this text, paired with the events of the New Testament, show us that this has actually happened. Jesus has come. The the apostles, the disciples, they figured this out. If you would flip, if you're following along in your Bible and you want to flip there for a second, to Matthew in chapter 4. and you may right away go, Matthew chapter 4, okay, the temptation, right? And Matthew chapter 4 is where you would find the temptation. It's also where you find the baptism of Jesus, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, right? And so you know, if you know that it was his baptism and then his temptation, right after his temptation, if you've studied your Bible and you've read this part, if you haven't, it's okay. But if you have, then you know that this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is when Jesus comes on the scene essentially to publicly teach, right? And That's what we find beginning in verse 12. So Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and it says this. Now, when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are Israelite tribes, but they were regions named after those tribes. And then in verse 14, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Saying, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, does that seem familiar? It does. And it says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus had come. Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, God of the flesh, mighty Counselor, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. Jesus had come. Jesus had come into the region and began his public ministry. That which everyone was waiting for, Jesus had come. Jesus had come to preach Teach. There's a moment in time at which Jesus walks away from healing a whole bunch of people and he says, For this purpose, I have come to explain the good news. Jesus had come, he had come to teach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. God was authorizing something incredible in Isaiah's day so that he could see that Jesus would come. In Jesus' day, because Jesus actually did come. In our day, because we are waiting on him to come back again. Jesus had come. Now, it's interesting. Because, of course, when Jesus came, there were some people who failed to be glad, weren't there? Jesus came and taught, and many crowds gathered, and there were healings. So people couldn't walk, could now walk, who couldn't see, could now see. Jesus did amazing healing. He did uh, walking on water. And people got afraid. They didn't, they didn't get glad. They looked at him and said, oh, who is this? They, they looked at Jesus with a little bit of bewilderment. Because something had happened along the way to waiting for Jesus to come. And I told you it was difficult. Something had happened along the way to waiting for Jesus to come. That instead of being glad when Jesus came, they were concerned. They were worried. Uh, maybe they needed healing, and they were glad when they got healed. But many people, and even people who were healed by Jesus, left him during his lifetime. When Jesus asked the disciples, "Will you leave me too?" after he taught <laughs> some particularly difficult teachings and people were walking away from him, they said, "Lord." You have the words of life. Where would we go? They didn't go, oh, no, we're glad to follow you. We're rejoicing and super excited that you're here because you are the Messiah. even, Even when Peter said, we recognize that you are Jesus the Christ, you don't hear in his voice super gladness, like, yay, I'm super excited. Rather, there were some people who missed being glad. I submit to you, there are people still missing being glad today. We're missing it right now. Right now, in this room, on the street, in our houses, and in other churches, we're missing being gladness. We rejoice because Jesus has come. Not only did he come, by the way, he lived a sinless life and then died on the cross, a sinner's death. But he came back from death. He came back a second time to prove that there is life. For us after death, the death has been defeated. Listen, whatever you're going through today, as difficult as it may be, if you're sick, lost a job, relationships broken, finances struggling, whatever you're going through today, does not nullify the prophecy of Isaiah, which says there will be gladness in the presence of the Lord. If Jesus is with you during what you're going through, then you have a reason to be glad. I shared an inspirational moment just briefly that I've been present at the deaths in this lifetime, or a better way, I might be saying, it is some when a number of saints transitioned into heaven. Family members or folks who are in this room or with us online, as they transitioned to heaven, I, I was there, and I submit to you that in every case. Where the person who lay in the bed and was about to go to heaven is struggling, usually struggling to breathe. Because whatever they tell you about cause of death, most of the people that I've seen die die because they stop breathing. They're usually struggling to breathe. And as they're struggling to breathe and ready to transition, you know what I saw? Gladness. I, I of all the believers, of all the people who really truly claim the name of the Lord that I've been in the room when they were dying, I have yet to be in the room and see one of them go kicking and screaming or upset or whatever. They're all trusting in God. So if, they're, if we're going to trust in God in that moment, if you truly believe in the Lord and you're going to go to heaven and Jesus has come and lived and died and rose again and is present in you now, where is your gladness? Because whatever you're going through now, you ought to be able to say, this is only temporary. One of the most meaningful few paragraphs of literature I've ever read in all my life was in, this, in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the slave, and I've used this illustration a couple of times, but it's extremely meaningful to me. The slave is laying, Tom is laying on the boat on a barge, being shipped down the Mississippi River, off to a plantation from which he knows he will never return because no one ever does. All the slaves there all die. All the men slaves all die there. And he's a horrible slave master. That's where he's going. And he's laying on the boat, and he's crying. He's tied up, laying there already been beaten, whatever, and playing. He's crying. And when she wrote that, she wrote, he's crying, not because he's been beaten, not because he's going down the river, not because he'll never see his family again, but he's crying because he realizes that all the people that are around him, while he is on his way to the plantation, which he now sees as a step to going to heaven, he's going to heaven, all the people around him are lost and dying and going to hell. If you're going to be sad, there's a reason to be sad. But it isn't because things aren't going the way you want. It isn't because you don't have what you want. That's catering to your lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. You don't need to do that. It isn't because you are not happy getting what you want. See, they give the example of they're glad when they get the spoils. They're glad when the harvest comes in. Because that's what a common person does. We are glad when things go right for us. But if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ... Things have gone so irrevocably right for you that you ought to be glad in the midst of the worst of times. There is gladness in the presence of the Lord. And yet, amongst Christians, it seems that we have fallen into the same trap that these people did in their day when they were waiting for Jesus to come. They fell into some kind of a trap. And I'll get to it in a moment. A little more clearly, I think. They fell into some kind of a trap that caused them to not be glad at the approaching coming of Jesus. And then when Jesus actually did come, that's kind of scary because if we're not glad when he comes next time, we have a real problem, don't we? Because you'll refuse him. Where is the gladness that Isaiah prophesied? Where is the gladness? that ought to be at the coming of Jesus? Where is the gladness that ought to be at the presence of Jesus in our lives? Now, I, I'm not saying I don't do the very same thing. I, some years ago when Unites was a young church, we set up an account with Sam's Club. Um, Sam's Club is a wholesale warehouse. We don't know if it's like a big Walmart, but they don't sell kind of big quantity stuff and like that. And it's, prices aren't, no offense Sam's Club, they're not going to sponsor me anyway, but if prices aren't really that great, but you can buy stuff in large quantity there, large quality or reasonably high quality. We set up an account with Sam's Club, and that's where our church website was going to be through. And they ran our website for us very inexpensively for many years, and that was kind of a bargain. They don't do that anymore. Went to Sam's Club the first day that we were going to use our Sam's Club membership, and I went to get my picture taken. And to tell you the truth, I was working my butt off. I was I was in school at the time, plus I was working at the time, plus I was pastoring the at the time, and that's that's often been the case over the years. I would stretch pretty thin. And I think we had a new child. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was taking care of Aaron with the work and stuff but back then. And so I was short on sleep, having maybe four or five hours sleep a night plus working 40 hours a week. And I go to get my picture taken for my Stamps Club ID. And she said, okay, smile. And I went like this. And she didn't take the picture. And I said, are you gonna take the picture? And she said, are you gonna smile? And I, and I said, I barely smiled, and she said, "Okay, click." She said, you I don't understand something." And I said, "What?" She said, "This is church membership you have here, right?" Said, yeah. And she said, you're the pastor." I said, "Well, yeah, I'm a church planter pastor." Yeah. And she said, "Aren't pastors supposed to be glad?" We all do it. We get in the middle of what's going on, and you lose your gladness. You need somebody to remind you that you got Jesus. And if you got Jesus, you ought to have gladness. Surely something has gone wrong and in the middle of that you went, oh wait, anyway, that's really not a problem after all, you know? And that's the where we should be with Jesus. All right. The second thing that I want you to see in there then is that God through Jesus and the coming of this one, they were looking forward to him, we now know him as Jesus, has ordained every act of injustice as fuel for the fire. Everything that anyone ever does wrong, God said, because of the coming of Jesus, will burn. Every lie that everybody's ever told, every time everybody ever, you physically, emotionally, or psychologically, everybody, that is still wrapped up in doing those things. Let's not dwell on that for too long. But that's what hell's all about. Every act of injustice, every unrighteousness will burn. That's what Isaiah saw before the coming. Now it would happen because of the coming a child who would be born to them. That's why and the nature of Jesus. Okay, every act of injustice will burn. So when someone lies to you, you can say that'll burn, and that ought to be. A reason for gladness when someone hurts you psychologically. Say that'll burn. When you're struggling and you're, you do something stupid and you go, "Ooh, I should should have done that." You say that'll burn. But I submit to you that at that moment when you realize that's true. You turn it over to God, confess, and say, "Okay, God, I'm letting you forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness as you promised." Would you let that go. Don't go. I think I'll hold on to that. Right? Don't think. I, I think I'll strap that in my backpack for a while. Because I'm actually pretty good at telling that lie. And if I tell that lie often enough, I might actually get ahead in this. world. yeah, it'll burn in the day. I'm going to keep it for now. Don't do that. You let it go. Because every act of injustice, every foot that's ever tread in blood, every cloak that's ever laid in blood, every act of evil and unrighteousness will burn. It is fuel for the fire because a child was sent for us. And his nature is known. So true was that that every act of unrighteousness would burn. So true was that that somebody had to pay for the sins of mankind. And the sins of mankind were paid for by Jesus himself dying on the cross. If the acts of evil and unrighteousness that we have done were not paid for by Jesus, They'd be paid for by us. And you can't pay it. You'll never be done paying. You'd spend hell, eternity in hell, paying for it and never be done paying for it. But because the acts of unrighteousness and injustice would burn, Jesus died so that we don't have to burn for our own acts of unrighteousness and injustice. And by the way, that's a reason to be glad. The next time you screw up and realize you screwed up, instead of going, oh, woe is me, I'm a poor fool, idiot, I think I might be going to hell or whatever, knock it off. Just turn to God and say, but Lord, I'm trusting in you. I confess that's a stupid screw up and I'm not going to do it again. Repent of it and move on. And be glad because every act of injustice and unrighteousness will burn. Third thing I want you to see in there, the first was he has come, this has been done and accordingly there is reason to be glad. Second thing was that he has ordained that every act of injustice will be fuel for the fire and we ought not to have any part with anything like that. And the third thing to see is that God's jealous desire for his people is what would accomplish this. Remember I mentioned to you that it was kind of like a Kind of a hard concept for us to understand. There are people who get, they latch on to a dream. They want to do something. They want to um, start a nonprofit or build a company or, or they want to have kids someday uh, or they want to get married to the right person and they'll chase that person for years and they'll try to make that person be the right person for them and they'll try to be the right person for that person so they can have just the thing that they wanted. You know? There are people that live their whole lives striving after something. They want something. And they want it so badly that they will literally pour themselves into getting it and never quit right up until the day that they die. And sometimes they die, realizing that the thing that they were after wasn't really very good. It wasn't really what they wanted or what they needed. It wasn't good enough, anyway, to really satisfy. If you can picture that, if you have ever been like that, you've wanted something so bad that you've pushed hard for it, and you've literally made everything in your life brisk for the mill to, to be used up, to be burnt up, if necessary, to get where you're trying to get to, now you're beginning to understand the zeal of God that is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. The God of the universe who is not limited in his resources. The God of the universe who is not limited in his knowledge of you and of what you have done of your successes, and of your failures. The God of the universe, who is limited in no way whatsoever, burns with passion and jealousy. He wanted you, he wanted me so badly to be in right fellowship with him that nothing at all would stop him. And his jealousy, his Passion for you. He is wanting you back. He's wanting me back. He's wanting his people back. It would lead him to send that child. Let that child, and let's even say to assist that child in living a sinless life and then to die on the cross. God, we always say God so loved the world, right? It's John 3, when you read God so loved the world, I want you to hear that God was so passionate, so zealous, so jealous, so desirous of the people of the world that he sent his only begotten son. God is love. Then how does love love? Love wants the object of the love. Love. So much that it consumes them completely. Our God is consumed completely in one act and one act alone. This is the problem. We encountered God, we believed in Jesus, we followed him. We said, Okay, now we're forgiven. Uh, glad, uh, maybe I'm struggling with my gladness. I spent a lot of time angry or impatient, or someone hurt me, or I'm depressed, or I whatever so right? we're struggling in my gladness. You know why you're struggling in your gladness? You're struggling in your gladness for the same reasons they were, because they forgot, we forgot, we've all forgotten the one key point, that our God of heaven exists for one purpose above all. He exists with one process in mind above all, and that is to come into right fellowship with human beings. Now, if human beings did exist, God would still exist. I understand that. God is love. And he created humans to be in a right relationship with him so he could love them and they could love him back in freedom. And then they submitted themselves to a form of slavery that made that impossible, except that there would be an atoning sacrifice, which was accomplished at the cross. God is jealous of you. That's why you can't tarry in unrighteousness. God is zealous for you. That's why you can't wander from him. David said, wherever I may go. If I should go to the bottom of the sea, you'd be there. If I go to the top of the mountains, you'd be there. If you die in a back alley, you'd be there. God will never fail to find you right where you're at, because God's whole being—I know this is difficult math to understand—but all that is God, bigger than all creation, all that is God, existing longer than you can possibly imagine back and. Further out than you can possibly imagine. All that is God is oriented around one thing. And that is coming into proper relationship with human beings. And you could just insert your name. Every tree that was ever created. Every cloud that ever rolled across the sky. Every wave that ever lapped at the ocean. every ounce of yeast that ever expanded or multiplied, every disease that ever rolled across the face of the earth, every gun that was ever loaded, ever made, every car, every tire ever on gravel or on pavement or on grass, everything in creation has one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is for God to come into right relationship with you, me, us. This is how powerful God's plan was That in all of his efforts, in all that he ever did, when the volcano at Pompeii erupted ash and buried the city, When the Sphinx was buried under the sand and then later unburied. When the earth ripped open and created the Grand Canyon. Why do you think it is when you stand in front of something that is amazing? You walk into the woods and you stand there and it's so quiet, and there's nothing, not a sound. It's Insects. Insects. There's no there. And you and you go, oh. you feel a sense of all that sense of all Well, I, oh, it's awesome because God created it. It's me experiencing God. And that's what people do who are new agey. They go out and they experience God in one experience after another after another. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is when God comes and takes up residence in you. And every time you pray and every time you think about God, I want you to realize that that experience of awe, that feeling of awe, that recognition, it's actually the tip of the iceberg as you realize that that silent forest, that rainbow in the sky, that amazing waterfall, that huge canyon, those things, they're nothing. They're infinitely small Compared to the infinite size of the God of the universe. And that Grand Canyon was created for one purpose and one purpose alone. To come into right relationship with you and with me. With us, with humans. God doesn't exist to come into relationship with us. He exists just because he is the existing God. We covered that last week. He exists. And then because he exists, we exist to come into relationship with him. God's jealous desire for his people would accomplish this, and we come to the close. Before we get there, we need a little transition. And that is this. I want you to know, as sad as it is, and it's in this text that you saw it, the enemy knows the end and yet the enemy trudges on. The enemy knows the end, and yet the enemy trudges on. And what we're talking about today is why the enemy trudges on. He knows in the end he'll burn in hell for eternity. He knows in the end he'll be separated from God. He doesn't know how near the end is. There was a demon in Jesus' day that recognized Jesus and said, have you conquered four men before at the time? Do they know the end? Every demon, every evil spirit, Satan himself, I submit to you that those who refuse to know God, those who hate God, human beings who hate God and refuse to know God, they know their end. They'll deny it. Jesus can do deny that there is a God. But they inherently know their end. The enemy knows the end. Now we're going to see why. The enemy continues. Remember when we talked about the battle of Midian? Isaiah used that as an illustration. He said that God would do this. I'll read it verse 4. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. And you remember the battle of Midian enough because I did give you a little summary. at the be any kind of dog your memory. 300 guys, right? The pitcher in the porch the sword. And by the way, how many people did they strike down? Does it really matter? Mostly they struck each other down. The armies struck each other down. They thought that they were in their midst, but they broke the pitchers. And they began to strike each other down. God destroyed them. So 300 men was an awful lot of men, wasn't it? It was enough to make them think, and they began to do what they did, which was destroy each other. If you flip in your Bibles to the story of Gideon, you'll find it in Judges chapter 7. But guess what? Only about half of the story, a little less than half of the story that we just described, that's the story that we all know. Being part of the three hundred. In like fact, I did a sermon back when we were on Main Street about being part of three hundred, and we had a big three hundred. we didn't know, three hundred couldn't signed the, sign the names. I still had that, by the way. If you wondered whether you were out at that time of the book, most of you were. Okay. The three hundred is only part of the story. Well, the three hundred is present for the full story, but that part, which is really cool, is only part of the story. After that happened, all the bad guys that remained fled, right? In chapter 7, verse 24, it says, And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as beth Barah, and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned. And they took the waters as far as beth Barah, and the Jordan, and they captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. And a little conflict develops where they're mad because Gideon didn't include them in the original battle, okay? The discussion. And Gideon kind of gives credit to them and says, uh, what was I able to do compared to what you did? Let's go down to verse four. Now, this is chapter eight, verse four. It says, then Gideon and the 300 men, I submit to you, they have not stopped fighting. They have not slept. They've hardly eaten, okay? Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over weary yet pursuing they got almost nothing left but they're coming across okay so the, this is the continuation of the same story and he said to the men of Succoth please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me for they are weary so he's moving through this area and he says please give them bread because they're weary and I am pursuing Zabah and Zimuna the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, "Listen to this. This is huge." The leaders of Succoth said, "Are the hands of Zabah and Zelmuna already in your hands? That we should give bread to your army?" In other words, he said, "Do you already have the victory? Have you actually stopped the Midianites? Have you actually defeated those kings? That we should give bread to your army?" And Gideon said, "All right. When the Lord has given Zabah and Zelmuna into my hand, then <clears throat> I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up from there to Penuel, and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him, just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now Zaba and Zalmunna were in Karpor, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men. That's still a lot more than 300, by the way. In case you had to check that. All who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for the fallen were already... I added already, 120,000 swordsmen. And Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Baba and Jogbeha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zibah and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Now it sounds like the battle of Midian is over, doesn't it? But it isn't, is it? You know it's not over because we just heard what was going to happen next before we even read it. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Perez, and he captured a young youth from Succoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zabah and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zabah and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. And he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zabah and Zalmuno, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. He said to Jeherah's firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. And then Zabah and Zalmunna said, rise up yourself and fall on us, for as a man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zabah and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hands of Midian. See, now the battle is ending, and they want to make Gideon king. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. When Isaiah is writing about what will happen when the Messiah, the anointed one, comes, when he is writing about the battle of Midian and about how God will destroy all the opposition, about how all unrighteousness will become fuel for the fire, he remembers the two cities, Succoth and Vinod, and how they would not join in the fight, how they would not refresh Gideon's weary men. And the reason they gave was because it wasn't done yet. They said, have you actually caught the enemy king's In order for us to give you bread, let me tell you today what you don't want to do. Don't wait to see if we win. If you wait to invest yourself, if you wait to give all that you have and all that you are, if you wait, to claim the joy that is in Christ, to know that he is with you every moment of every day. If you tarry in sorrow and anger and frustration and depression and malice and hatred toward others and self-pity, if you do all of that, then when God's people come into the kingdom, You may find yourself like a mule and sucketh rather than like Gideon and his 300 men. Gideon and his 300 men, they were exhausted. They needed support. The church is exhausted. We need support. The church needs to work together. The church needs to lift each other up. If you have resources, bring them to bear. Refresh the weary. Get in the fight. The enemy doesn't quit because he knows that some humans are just stupid enough, just foolish enough to say, I'm going to wait and see. I'm not going to invest myself completely. I'm not going to take up my cross, meaning I'm willing to suffer, deny myself, which means put my, my own preferences aside, and follow him every day. I'll go to church. I'll worship. I'll give a little. I'll, maybe I'll tithe. I'm not really going to sacrifice myself so that the kingdom can win the lost. Listen to me. If you are in partnership with some kind of God that you think allows you to not share the gospel, not tell people about Jesus, not serve, not love others, then that is not the God of heaven. Because he, because he accomplishes everything that he accomplishes through his jealousy, through his zealousness, through his passion to be in a right relationship with other human beings and with us. And so he sent his son, whom we call Savior and Lord, In order to be saved. If. You don't have Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're not saved. If you have Jesus as Lord and Savior. You have reason to be glad. Probably weary. As well. But strengthened by the Lord. We pour ourselves in. 100%. I'm not waiting. To see whether or not Jesus is going to come again. I know he's going. I'm not waiting to see whether or not Jesus is going to call the church home. I know he's going to call it church home. I believe it with every fiber of my being. Do I ever struggle? Am I ever tempted? Do I ever doubt? I'm human. You're human. We all have these issues. But this is what you try to do day in and day out. Don't hold back. The enemy wants you to wait and see. That's what his whole fight is about. Because he can take a certain number of people and get them to wait and see. He continues to fight. If every human on the face of the planet would say, no, I'm going to trust in God. I will not wait and see. I will have faith. The next day, the devil would have nothing to fight for. evil spirits would have nothing to fight for. But because they can get us to delay, they can get us to put off our efforts. They can get us to hold back to be careful. They keep fighting. Jesus has already come. Be glad. Every act of injustice and evil doing will be fuel for the fire. God's jealous desire for His people accomplish this and hear me it has already been done so don't wait work serve connect with other believers exercise your spiritual gift and the spiritual disciplines be gods people refresh the weary and get in the fight because the battle of Midian did not end when 300 Israelites, aided by God, defeated 12,000, 120,000, what did I say it was, tens of thousands, there you go, of Midians. It ended when Gideon said, no, God will be your ruler." That's what I need to say. That's what you need to say. Let this mind be in a stuporous Jesus. We pray for your and will be true the message. Father in heaven, I, I suppose it's the the environment in which we live these days—the pandemic, and social media, and, and stuff that's going on on the streets that people are doing that maybe they should never do. And it frustrates us. It angers us. It un undermines our peace, but it shouldn't. If we have walked out the faith that we say we believe, then we ought to be able to close our eyes and picture you on the throne. Know that whatever is going on right now, it's not outside your knowledge, not unable to be influenced by you. Lord, I'm asking you, having seen what we have seen, having been where we have been, bolster in us our gladness. Encourage us and lift us up and help us to realize that It's all good. It's all taken care of. I do not doubt the power of your jealousy for us. I do not doubt the power of your zealousness for us. Why would we? For you have shown it clearly. You know that you will accomplish in us, in the church, in the world, in eternity. All that you put your mind to and all your mind is put to being in relationship with the people. And the lost and dying of this world must hear the truth. I'm asking you, Lord, to encourage us and strengthen us and send us wherever it is, whatever situation, share the simple truth of what we have seen and heard that they too may have fellowship with us. Of course, our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. but if there is someone here today who's not given their life to you and our no matter what anybody else thinks, if they have not accepted you into control of their life, if they have not committed themselves into your hands, I pray that you would lead them to do so just now when they're with us in the room, in the chairs, online. All that you are it's all about this. And it's only us. Just our willingness to not hold back to be in a relationship with you. Lord, let that person who may be here in my voice right now truly surrender their life into your hands. For those of us, Lord, who have made that commitment, who have felt your Holy Spirit, who have been baptized in your Holy Name, who have been living for you, and in earnest know that you have saved us let this come as a strong reminder to us that we have reason to be glad and also reason to be pouring ourselves 100% into the effort to advance the kingdom of God to see people get saved because that is who our God is. Let us not quit in our weariness. Let us not be unwilling to refresh others who are weary. Let us not be unwilling to join the fight in every capacity. And if there is someone here today who knows that they have not been measuring up by that standard, Lord, then let them repent and turn to you in their hearts right now. And if it has been online today and they have figured out, hey, I'm not fully in for the Lord, I'm not fully committed, I am not on fire or not given over my fullness, I've been tearing with these unrighteous acts, I've been allowing myself to be distracted, I've been fearful, whatever it might be, Lord, then let them repent and turn to you and commit their lives into your hands. And if there is something else that you're working in somebody's heart, Lord, then you and them sort it out. We, we unleash you, Lord, as if we could ever leash you. We pray your will be done. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I ask our praise team members to come and lead us then. In a, this will be the closing hymn of our service. It is also an opportunity for you to make a decision, whether you are online, to make a decision, you can message in if you are in the room and you've made some kind of a decision you make that decision public uh, you don't have to walk forward to the front of the room there's no front of the room here today so you just um, get my attention and as soon as we stop singing you'll have the opportunity to share with us what the lord has laid on your heart okay so sound system is off minute, so <sighs> Comfortable and able to do so, would you stand where you are and sing this song with us? If you're not making a decision or a change of heart hasn't taken place today, then you just sing the words and let God know that this is your attention. I surrender. All. That's all. I surrender.
1: <speaking in Spanish> no, I Let these
0: lyrics be your prayer to God. Is there anyone who needs to share a word or something more late on your heart as we were hearing from the word and maybe they service today? Okay. If you're online and you need to me- message us, you're welcome to do that. And we will definitely check those things before we're through. Um, I've had an experience in the last couple of weeks. I had a number of people around me because I, I've been in quarantine. Um, I did have COVID. I did test negative two weeks ago today. Um, and then... Uh, about 48 hours after that, got the symptoms of COVID, and uh, it became quite obvious, and the health department declared me as we called presumptive positive, and that's why I haven't been able to be here. Um, my fever is long gone. My symptoms are much, much better, as you can tell, so I'm no longer contagious. A similar circumstance happened to Brother Tim, although he was tested about three hours before me and tested positive, right? So he tested positive. He had a similar situation, so he's doing much better, praise the Lord. So, our, so thank God we're no longer contagious. And also now we're sort of immune for a few months. So that'll be a weird feeling to not feel like you might get COVID at any time, like I've been feeling for the last nine months. But anyway, um, bottom line is, um, while that happened, because I was out, there was a number of people who really stepped up. And they and they are have done some things, uh, especially the Life Station. Uh, Jamie is one of those. And date was there. And jumped in and i don't and i and i wouldn't try to name everybody and i'm not trying to praise anybody but um really what i want to say is that this is what the lord laid on my heart out of that people really step up when other people are showing an obvious need um i submit to you that if you really and and again i'm not praising anybody and i'm not saying anything negative about anybody if we really love the lord we're all going to step up now because the world is suffering and we need to share the gospel. And we need to help people. And um, we, have, we have very blessed have the life station and also the pantry here uh, that has helped a ton of people in a very, very difficult time. Uh, if you're interested, I will pray play you a voicemail receiver so I do it now. Maybe next week. For inspiration. It really touched my heart. Uh, and this lady just just sound like maybe she was she had to shoot with a voicemail, but maybe she was on her knees and tears, and she was just praising up one side, down the other, the groceries that she had received from the Life Station and how blessed she was. She said, we had no food, we had nothing to eat, and now we received it. and it was like Christmas. She said, I thank you for this. And I think, and said, thank you for individual items in the food basket that she received, and we've had some of those from here, from the, from the pantry at New Heights, people have done that. and." Um, we can make a difference. We are making a difference. And you may be stressed to the hilt. Let me encourage you to look still for a way to make a difference. So you, can, we can, I think with God's help, we can always do more. And I'm not trying to be uh, overstepping my bounds because I don't know what God wants each person to do. I'm, I can't tell you what to do because I don't know that. But I do know that we have been given a leader who is the Lord. He is the wonderful counselor. I would just encourage you to listen to God and figure out in the middle of a pandemic for the world torn with wars, and the world torn with weather disasters, for the world torn. 52% of the households within one to three miles, one and three miles of this building are single parent households. They're raising a mom or a dad raising their children alone. Alone. And then 30 some percent of households within three miles of this building, and this will blow your mind, have no car. Next time you jump in your car, rush off to Walmart, or close to pick up a curbside order, or just decide to run out and get a burger. 30% of them have no car. There are people that are hurting and struggling, and we can help and then bring the gospel. And that's what we need to do. Last, to Brother Tony Brister, if you would kindly close us in prayer, and just however the Lord needs to. Did
1: you. miss it here.